Hey everybody! You are listening to the Creative BioLabs podcast, the show that introduces the basics about stem cells and their broad applications. Please contact us if you have any questions or suggestions. And don't forget to subscribe to follow the latest updates. Welcome, dear listeners. Today's sharing guest is still our favorite Dr. Benjamin Smith. Let's give a warm welcome to this famous scientific journal editor. Could you please say hello to the audience, Dr. Smith? Glad to see you again, dear listeners. Thank you for your kind invitation, Connie. In the previous two episodes, we reviewed the development of mouse embryos during pre-implantation and the earliest post-implantation stages. This can be used as a basis for understanding the developmental potency of embryonic stem cells. Today, we will focus on the human embryo and other related highlights. Are there any differences between the development of humans and mice during implantation and gastrulation? Of course, there are significant differences. In brief, after the invasion of the uterine tissue, the human trophoblast cells form the syncytiotrophoblast. The trophoblast cells that contact the inner cell mass and the blastocelic cavity remain as diploid single cells, known as the cytotrophoblasts. With proliferation, these cells can fuse with syncytiotrophoblast, alternatively, become column cytotrophoblast or extravillous cytotrophoblast. In addition, a structure equivalent to the mouse extraembryonic ectoderm does not generally form in humans. What tissue formation is involved in human germ layer development? Human primitive endoderm cells, also referred to as hypoblast cells, segregate on the surface of the inner cell mass and proliferate. Some of these cells migrating into the line of the blastocelic cavity are involved in the formation of the exoalamic membrane, known as Heuser's membrane. Then, a spongy layer of acellular material called the extraembryonic reticulum is formed between the cytotrophoblast and the exoalamic membrane, analogous to the formation of the mouse Reichert's membrane. Thereafter, the extraembryonic mesoderm invades the extraembryonic reticulum. The origin of this tissue in humans may be the epiblast or hypoblast. The extraembryonic mesoderm proliferates to line the Heuser's membrane, which forms the primary yolk sac, and the cytotrophoblast, which forms the chorion. Subsequently, the extraembryonic reticulum is disintegrated and replaced by a fluid-filled cavity, the chorionic cavity. Thus, the primary yolk sac in humans is not equivalent to the parietal yolk sac in mice, although both are transient structures. The formation of the definitive yolk sac is facilitated by cells generated by a new wave of hypoblast proliferation. The primary yolk sac, which buds off and breaks up into small vesicles that are retained in the abembryonic pole, is eventually replaced by this new structure. The human definitive yolk sac is equivalent to the mouse visceral yolk sac. I see. What is the characteristic behavior of the human inner cell mass? The human inner cell mass can organize into a pseudostratified columnar epithelium and produce the amniotic cavity. On the one hand, those inner cell mass cells located on the hypoblast are called epiblast, which will generate the embryo proper. On the other hand, the inner cell mass cells contacting the trophoblast form the amnion. 
The patterns of cell movement during gastrulation are relatively conserved between chicks and humans. For example, the human embryo forms a bilaminar embryonic disc, similar to the chick embryo. What is the reason why embryonic stem cells from mice and humans are not the same? Can you provide examples from several aspects? Because the development of the inner cell mass in mice and humans is supported by the diversity in extraembryonic structures. Embryonic stem cells derived from mice and humans differ in developmental potency, for example, in their ability to differentiate into trophectoderm like cells. More detailed, the human embryonic stem cells can form trophectoderm in culture, but under normal conditions, the mouse embryonic stem cells cannot. In addition, cultured mouse embryonic stem cells have been shown to develop into cells with certain characteristics of mature germ cells, that is, sperm-like and oocyte-like cells. In terms of cell surface markers, mouse and human embryonic stem cells also express differently. Besides, they have different requirements for self-renewal in culture and respond differently to growth and differentiation signals although their expression profiles of core pluripotency genes are similar. Speaking of marker expression, it has been reported that mouse embryonic stem cells are a heterogeneous population in this regard. What does it mean? Heterogeneity means that mouse embryonic stem cells contain cells that resemble inner cell mass or epiblast cells. The mouse embryonic stem cells most associated with epiblast cells are like mouse epiblast embryonic stem cells. Furthermore, epiblast embryonic stem cells have similar characteristics to human embryonic stem cells, but not inner cell mass like mouse embryonic stem cells. Such extraordinary characteristics of mouse embryonic stem cells are assumed to come from a reproductive strategy in mice called facultative embryonic diapause. This means that the mouse blastocyst can be temporarily arrested in development in utero until implantation conditions become favorable. For example, the mother stops lactating. This arrested phase in culture could be reflected by mouse embryonic stem cells. In contrast, in the uterus of humans and most other mammals, the blastocyst either implants and develops or degenerates. What are the factors that support the survival and development of the embryo in the uterus? First, progesterone and estrogen are necessary for embryo survival by preparing the uterus for implantation and metaphase. And, the presence of blastocyst in the mouse uterus is sufficient to trigger ovarian production of these two hormones. The uterus will produce a variety of molecules, including leukemia inhibitory factor, epidermal growth factor, heparin-binding epidermal growth factor, transforming growth factor alpha, and amphoregulin. These molecules are involved in inducing the production of cyclooxygenase enzymes, the rate-limiting enzymes for prostaglandins production. In addition, these factors and the corresponding receptors play a crucial role during the window of embryo implantation. For example, when genes are deleted or mutated, it leads to female infertility due to a defective uterine response and embryonic lethality during or shortly after implantation. On the other hand, the embryo also produces important molecules, including interleukin-1-beta, 
transforming growth factor alpha, and insulin growth factor. These molecules induce implantation by stimulating embryo-uterine crosstalk in an autocrine and paracrine manner. It is known that it is essential to suppress the maternal immune response during the implantation process. How can embryos avoid maternal immune rejection? That is a good question. Trophectoderm cells are the only cell population of the conceptus that is in physical contact with maternal cells, and they have developed several mechanisms to avoid rejection. For example, trophectoderm cells produce many factors and enzymes, including indolamine 2,3-dioxygenase, which inhibits the maternal immune system. As well, Trophectoderm cells like polymorphic class I and class II major histocompatibility complex antigens. Could you please describe the role of extraembryonic tissues in patterning the mouse embryos? Sure. On the one hand, extraembryonic tissues are necessary for nutrition and regulation of implantation during development. On the other hand, they play essential roles in patterning the embryo before and during gastrulation. This was demonstrated from the analysis of chimeric embryos generated from blastocysts colonized with embryonic stem cells. It has been found that embryonic stem cells preferentially colonize the epiblast-derived tissues in chimeras. Thus, extraembryonic tissues of one genotype and epiblast-derived tissues of another genotype can produce embryos together. Are there any examples? Of course. For example, the gene nodal can be expressed in an embryonic and extraembryonic manner, depending on the developmental stage. In addition, embryos with nodal defects are unable to gastrulate. Therefore, it was difficult to distinguish between embryonic and extraembryonic functions in the beginning. However, when nodal null embryonic stem cells were introduced into wild-type blastocysts, the extraembryonic tissues were wild-type, in contrast to epiblast-derived tissues that lacked nodal. Until mid-gestation, the developing chimera was essentially normal. This indicated that the exclusive presence of nodal in extraembryonic tissues was sufficient to rescue the embryonic patterning. I see. What is the developmental pattern of the primitive endoderm? Different from the extensive mixing of ectodermal cells, labeled primitive endodermal cells develop to form more coherent clones, in keeping with the function of visceral endoderm in the embryonic pattern. The primitive endodermal cells close to the second polar body preferentially form visceral endoderm cells surrounding the epiblast. Conversely, Cells far from the second polar body preferentially form visceral endoderm cells surrounding the extraembryonic ectoderm. What are the characteristics of visceral endoderm cells at different locations? At embryonic day 5.5, the most distal visceral endoderm cells express the hex and lefty one genes exclusively. It was believed until recently that during the second day of embryonic development, this cell population migrated toward the expected anterior side of the embryo, forming an endodermal stripe known as anterior visceral endoderm. However, newer studies suggest that migratory anterior visceral endoderm may not be derived directly from distal visceral endoderm cells, but constitute a newly formed population. On the other hand, 
expression of WNT3, WNT2B, and bone morphogenetic protein 2 by the posterior part of the visceral endoderm cells is important for the patterning and development of the posterior embryo. The extraembryonic ectoderm also signals to the proximal epiblast before the gastrulation. The aim is to induce the expression of several genes important for posterior proximal recognition, particularly through bone morphogenetic protein 4 and bone morphogenetic protein 8b. What is the mission of anterior visceral endoderm? The duty of anterior visceral endoderm is to produce a myriad of secreted signaling molecules. Among them, it is worth mentioning the generation of antagonists of the nodal and WNT signaling pathways, which are important in specifying the anterior fate of the embryo. In conclusion, the extraembryonic tissue visceral endoderm and the ectoderm determine the anterior and posterior fate in the embryo by controlling the activity levels of the WNT and nodal or bone morphogenetic protein signaling pathways. It has been reported that in dorsal ventral patterning and organogenesis, the same two signaling pathways will further function. What can we learn? It has been found that both visceral endoderm and visceral endoderm-like cell lines secrete signals capable of inducing differentiation of mouse and human embryonic stem cells, at least to cardiomyocytes. The most efficient way to guide embryonic stem cell differentiation appears to be to use the tissues or sequences of signal transduction pathways used by the embryo for its patterning and differentiation. Thus, Understanding the events that occur early in embryonic development is essential to define differentiation signals more accurately. That makes sense. So much for our content today. I have learned a lot. Let's thank Dr. Smith for his wonderful scientific sharing. Thank you for listening. There will be more interesting topics waiting for us in the next program. See you next time. Thank you. I hope we will see you next time.